0: Well, welcome uh, everybody. hope you're having a good day. We're studying the book of Revelation. So we're in chapter 2, uh, and um, I want to begin the third of, of seven messages. This one begins in verse 12 of chapter 2, to the city of Pergamum. Now, again, just to remind you, it's up to you how you want to do this, but if you look at the the map that's on page 8, <clears throat> He's gone from Smyrna to Pergamum, basically due north. And Pergamum is the northernmost of these seven Aciarch cities. These are the great Aciarchs, the great uh, cities of the Roman province of Asia. And uh, Pergamum um, is one of uh, the very important, well, I shouldn't say that because they're all important, uh, is one of the unique. churches he addresses because he has some very positive things to say and yet in the midst of that positive there's something devastatingly negative negative. and I think to some extent this church and the next one that we will uh, address I don't know if we'll get to both of them but the Thyatira Church both of them in some ways resemble the challenge that faces us today in America And it's it's this issue of compromising compromising truth, and the the tendency perhaps, or at least the challenge, of how to deal with error when it is facing you, so so blatantly. So let's take a look at this, and uh, maybe one more point by way of reminder. What we're trying, the way I'm approaching it here this 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 time, is that these seven churches I want to use. in a positive way, in the sense that when we're all done, and I'll try to do this each time we we get together, when we're all done, we want to look at the seven characteristics of a renewed, revived, spiritually sensitive, spiritually energized church. Because remember, and this is very clear from chapter 1, Jesus is standing in the middle of these churches, and he's evaluating his church. And so, in both the negative and positive aspects, I'm going to turn it all into a positive when we're all done and say, these are the seven qualities that Jesus, the Lord of the church, wants to see and wants to develop. Remember that? It's just that keeps it, seems to me, that keeps the focus, I think, in the way we should look at it. Ephesians church, number one, was a church that is in love with Christ. Number two, Smyrna, a church that's willing to suffer for its Savior. Now, number two, excuse me, number three, Pergamum, we're going to turn this into a positive, a church that stands for truth, regardless of its cost. To the angel at the church in Pergamum, this is verse 12, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Now, each one of these churches is introduced by a descriptive metaphorical characterization of Jesus. So a sharp two-edged sword should remind you of what is in the book of Hebrews when it says the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword. So I think the point we're to get is Jesus is taking his word, sharp two-edged sword, and looking at the church at, at, at Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan... I'm going to read the whole thing, and I'll we'll come back and, and look at it. Where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you, because you... A few things against you. Because you have there are some who hold the teachings of Balaam we're going to have to talk about what that means, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Verse 15, thus you have also some who in same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Remember therefore, else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Takes you back to the beginning of this particular passage. He who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some hidden manna, I will give a white stone, and a new name written on the stone which no one else knows but he who receives it. There's a lot here, a a great deal, and some of it's kind of difficult, like the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. These are things you're not familiar with, I doubt, anyway, that you're familiar with them. So let's get the big picture. This is a church that he commends for its theological convictions, for its commitment to theological truth. And so you read, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And if you're following your notes, it's on page 10. But that's a curious phrase, where Satan has his throne. Good. Now, what does that mean? Well, that's figurative. But most people believe that what that is stressing, and we know this of Pergamum, this was one of the most significant cities uh, characterized by a deep-seated commitment to the Caesar cult, to the worship of Caesar. And we've talked about that before, that this was growing. By the end of the first century, which is when this book was written, the development of the Caesar cult was permeating the eastern Mediterranean. And remember, Caesar calls just the worship of Caesar as a God. And it was thriving here. That's probably what he means by that. And he says, you hold fast my name, you do not deny my faith. So in the midst of this, they're not giving in. They are holding to the theological, deep-seated commitment that Jesus is Lord. And they're not going to worship the Caesar. Remember, those were by the end of the first century had two things in conflict. Jesus is Lord or Caesar is Lord. Which one are you going to choose? And he even mentions, we do not, we do not know who this is, but he mentions an, a man by the name of Antipas who was martyred for this. He would not bow to Caesar. And therefore he's killed. He's martyred. So verse 4, 13 is my goodness, that's wonderful. But, they're tolerating something. It's it's an amazing and astonishing contrast. A group that stands theologically for something like, we worship Jesus, not the Caesar. And we're not going to bend on that. And yet they're tolerating something. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teachings of Balaam. Now, I'm not going to ask you, you know who Balaam is. I'm not going to ask you that. And I'm not going to say you should know who Balaam is. I'm not going to say that. And I'm going to suggest that probably if you study the Old Testament, his name is rather prominent, but I won't say that. And he's mentioned five times in the Bible, but I won't say that. Balaam is one of those curious figures of the Old Testament in the book of Numbers who keeps showing up. He's mentioned in Numbers 31, in Numbers 25. He's mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 2. He's mentioned in Jude verse 11. He's mentioned here. Balaam. Balaam was a man in the Old Testament who was a teacher, a teacher of truth to an extent, but he was hired by a man named Balak to curse Israel. And you might remember in the book of Numbers, he is also that figure as he is moving his way to get to that point where his donkey stops and starts talking to him. I don't know if you remember, does that bring a little bit of the Sunday school stories back to your mind? And so he's just one of those extraordinary figures and it ends up when it's time for him to curse Israel he actually blesses Israel to the chagrin and horror of the man who hired him so and this is always the case in Second Peter chapter 2 and Jude verse 11 and here Balaam represents a teacher who's corrupted by this seek of monetary gain by, by the, the, with the goal of seeking monetary gain you follow me So it's almost like I have taught the truth, but I can be bought. So you say, oh my goodness, in the midst of this wonderful church at Pergamum, where they stand for theological truth to the extent that they will not bow the the knee to, to Caesar, they're tolerating some teachers who are corrupt. And if you let your eye go down to verse 15, they're holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, I don't think it's important to get into the details of all they believe. That that isn't real significant for our study. Only this point, they are false teachers. The Nicolaitans are teaching error. But are the Nicolaitans in the church or outside the church? They're in this church. They're in this church at Pergamum teaching. Now, you could, I don't know what that exactly means. I don't know if they had a Sunday school class or a Bible fellowship class or a Bible study on a Wednesday over lunch. This is all one person smiling and you're getting it. I guess the rest of you aren't getting it. But I'm just trying to add we don't know exactly the format, but they're false teachers. And they're in the church. So you have two things being combined. You have an Old Testament figure like Balaam. And he's saying there are some of you who are holding to the teachings of Balaam. And that's strange because what does that mean? It doesn't mean content. It means how they did it. They're corrupt. They can be bought. And the content of their teaching is what the Nicolaitans are teaching. And the effect is, it's causing people to depart from the faith. In the in the context of Balaam, to lure Israel back into the sacrificing to idols and to immorality. Presumably, that's the same thing with the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans are a very early cult, and if you can just maybe use that word, who had as part of their teaching rather gross immoral practices. Now, why is this so important? Purity, theological commitment, but they're tolerating something. Why shouldn't they tolerate that? I mean, we're supposed to be loving. We're supposed to be compassionate we're supposed to be gracious we're supposed to be merciful and if someone has a little bit of an error in some of their teachings I mean my goodness it's better have them in the church so they can hear the truth and we will win them to the truth is that the way Jesus is approaching why is this such a big deal Woody
1: because uh, you explained last week that they were being prosecuted for they thought they had, it was incest.
0: Well, thought, yeah. And, and uh,
1: cannibalism because they took communion. This is my body, this is my mm-hmm. blood. And there was a third one, I, I forgot what you said. But well, atheism, atheism,
0: they wouldn't worship you the Caesar. Know. Caesar no. Yeah. So they just
1: added by having these other people okay. there that teaching the wrong thing or believing the wrong thing, they're just. Sending a mixed signal to the rest of the people. Okay. And would be further persecuted, I think.
0: Well, that could. could result where they're further per- persecuted. And of course, this is a different church than the one at Smyrna. But here, here you have a church. I mean, what's the matter with what they're doing?
1: Jim's got
0: to come. I know. I'm trying to just drive home. I want you to think what is the matter with what they're doing? Jim?
1: Well, I, I'm going to say throughout biblical history, you see God being particularly protective of his people to keep purity because it's so easy to have an infected and have your faith detoured and sin to enter in. I mean, so much easier to pull somebody down than to pull off. So this is all about protecting the purity <clears> of <throat> the church.
0: It really is. I love that word that you're using, protecting. That's, that, that, it's a great way to see this. I don't believe there is anything. I'm just rethink. Do I really want to say it so? But I think I do. I don't think there's anything more of a concern to Jesus as Lord of the Church than this issue of the purity of doctrine. Because if you now hear me out and let me explain this, if you get doctrine wrong, doctrine, you know, who is God? What's the nature of God as trinity? Who's Jesus? What's the relationship of his deity and humanity? What happened at the cross? Is he resurrected? Is he coming? If you get those doctrinal truths wrong or you mix them with something else, a thesis of the New Testament is sound doctrine produces godly living. So what's the corollary? Bad doctrine affects how you live. And that's, what he means by the teaching of Balaam. Corrupted doctrine affects your behavior. So if you get doctrine wrong, you can find yourselves rationalizing and justifying things in terms of actions and behavior that are terribly displeasing to your savior. So does sound doctrine and the protection of the purity of sound doctrine matter? Yes.
1: That is so easy to see in our world today. We, we, we suffer from ignorance in a lot of ways, but one of the most profound is the lack of knowledge of the
0: Bible. Absolutely. Absolutely. I studied under a man who used to say, American... Uh, how did he say, American evangelical, I think that's how he said it. American evangelicalism is 3,000 miles wide, you know, the width of our country, and a quarter of an inch deep. And I mean, he, he was always humorous in the way he put things, but there was, there was a real significant truth to that. There isn't a lot of depth of understanding of sound doctrine among people. And if there's not an understanding of the depth of sound doctrine among people, Then they can easily batter, be battered, you know, like waves batter or wind batters, by false teaching. And by behavior and actions that are very displeasing. That's that's the threat of Balaam. That's what Jesus means when he brings up the teaching of Balaam. Corrupted doctrine affects behavior. He was leading them to sacrificing of idols and acts of immorality. And the Nicolaitans, a rather bizarre group, All the, without getting into all those details, it's exactly the same thing. Jesus is concerned about protecting the purity of what his church believes. Jim,
1: things can easily get watered down.
0: Absolutely.
1: That's
0: a danger for, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Watered down, superficial, shallow, and the, and something comes along knocks you off your off your your path and and you are back into things that are very displeasing to the lord so now look i think you already know this but let's just make sure this is clear what you believe affects how you live i mean it really does what you believe affects how you live so it matters what you believe and one of my, I mean, I've been in higher education most of my adult life. One of my greatest concerns is we are not, generally speaking now, but we are not preparing young people for the world that they're going to live in. We are not preparing them, generally speaking. And they get, when they get off to college, they get mauled over because they're not prepared very well. And so Jesus, this is just immensely significant. So what does he say to them in verse 16? Repent. Knock it off. Stop it. And I will make war against them. Now notice it's not, not everybody but them. Who's the them? Those who are tolerating the Balaam Nicolaitan teaching. I would assume he has in mind they're the leaders. Jim, how would you define uh, tolerating and
1: participating in terms of a local church? How would you distinguish those and the duty of a Christian to, out of of real love, share with that person if they're going in error? I mean, it, it may not be the pastor. We're not pastors here. I mean, you are. But um, what role does a churchgoer in a sound doctrine
0: church have in that situation? Well, um, you're asking, and uh, this is, I hope you understand, you're asking it so generally I'm not exactly sure how to respond. Uh, there is. Um, there is the necessity, I think. So let me start at the, the leadership level of the church and maybe work down a little bit. There is the responsibility at the leadership level of the church. Now, if it's a very small church, that would largely be the pastor. But if it's a little bit of a larger church, it's usually a multi staff. You have several, and then you have a whole group of volunteers that are very much involved your board and other things. It is really, really important, I think, that the leadership, Fred, be really committed to sound doctrine. I mean that's just we, we, that's a given, and we're going to do a lot of things like uh, there should be a doctrinal statement that everybody annually affirms, there should be a, a consideration on the part of the pastor and, and, and/ or his or her staff to take a portion of each year in your preaching cycle that you're using to really stress doctrine, teach doctrinal sections. You you don't necessarily have to teach that every Sunday, but almost everything in the Bible has some doctrinal implication. Stress that. And then finally, I think in terms again of the leadership, is be aware of what is being taught, like in the Sunday school classes. I mean, like for example, in children, what curriculum is being used. With teens, what, what is going on there? What is being taught there? And even in... The adult Bible fellowship, or what we sometimes call adult Sunday school classes, and so on—not where you're every, you know, every Sunday going and taking notes on everything everybody says, but just be aware of what is going on, so that there is always that protective function. It is really important that we be concerned about sound doctrine and sound teaching. And I'm not sure, um, and again, these are a very broad stroke statement. I'm not sure that is always going off so then at another level if you are just you know just a common ordinary member of the church and just you know someone who is is very involved but not in any leadership role specifically if you if you hear or see or observe some things that are of real concern it, it is your responsibility just this, this little bit of concern i want to dig a little bit deeper you hear somebody say some things do you, you know can we talk a little bit about that because i think this is not This is not true. This is not the accurate way to say some of this. It matters what we say about doctrinal truth. Um, Again, you ask that so broadly, I don't know how else to quite answer it other than with very broad strokes like this. Um, We're not talking about issues... um, about which Christians do legitimately disagree. There are issues that we do, we do have disagreement on some of these things. But for the most part, doctrine of God as trinity, deity and humanity of Christ, the second coming of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross, his resurrection, we don't compromise on that stuff at all. We don't. And it's just those kinds of things to continue to teach and just review those those items, uh, I think is just is really, really important.
1: I, I know you don't like to go off sidetracks here, but I'll, you know, I
0: already am, but that's all right. <laughs> so
1: you're saying that we don't equip our young people um, to defend or to fulfill their faith once they get to
0: college. Defend maybe is a better word okay. than fulfill, but defend.
1: Um, what, 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 are you, what What are we missing and what should we do?
0: Man, that is a bunny trail. Um, many churches are doing a wonderful job, but I think I—I've been in higher education all my life, so I know there is a very significant difference in 2015 than there was in the 80s when I started. I mean, not um, kids that came to our institution in the 80s—they—they were—they were pretty well equipped. Pretty well prepared. You could you could have you could have discussions with them about very basic doctrinal truths of the faith now. And this is a faith-based institution that I led for 15 years. But I'm talking also about kids that go to a, a public university or to a non-faith-based private university, where the substance of and often content of the teaching is at best neutral when it comes to faith, at worst hostile when it comes to faith. And part of the intent of the professors and curriculum and so on, is to try to promote a secular approach to faith and dismantle belief systems, especially of Christianity. And so how a young person that, I'm going to tell you, right now there's a guy at Duke University. He teaches in the religion department. He teaches a course that most students want to sign up. This is how he begins his course. How many of you have read the Harry Potter series? Of course, 90% of the kids raise their hand. How many have read the Bible? Again, pretty high percentage raise their hand. How many of you believe in the Harry Potter series, that you believe that's true? Of course, nobody, because it's fiction. It's a great story. How many of you believe the Bible? And of course, a lot of the kids raise their hand. And he says, how can you believe, or how can you disbelieve in all of the mythical crazy things going on in Harry Potter and believe the Bible, which it says a man walks on water, a man heals people, a man is resurrected from the dead, on and on and on. How can you believe those fantastic stories? That's silly. How can you believe, disbelieve this is fiction, but believe this which has as much fiction and as much fantastic legend as this, and yet you believe this is true and you believe this is false? What's his intent in that, answer, that line of questioning? To enhance the faith of those kids or to tear down the faith of those kids? Do you understand what I'm saying? That I'm, this, is, I, this is exactly what he does. And he, he, I've heard him in a lecture talk about this is what I do the first day of my class. He's very proud of it. And so parents are paying fabulous amounts of money to send their kids to Duke University, one of the top schools in the East, and this is one of the professors. It's a highly popular class. They turn students away from that class every semester. Now, that, that, that's not everybody. Okay, what does a young teenage, 19, 20-year-old, what do they do with that? And then he starts down the track, and he starts picking apart all of the things of the Christian faith. Now, he does the same thing with Islam, but it's it's primarily, he's written books on it. His name is Bart Ehrman. He's a very well-known guy. And it's, it's that kind of thing. If we are not preparing our kids, how do I know the Bible is the word of God and that I can trust it? How do I know that the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are true history, not just a bunch of myths? Because they're the kind of questions that are being asked. That's all I mean by that, Dave. And it's, uh, I've started, in our church, I'm doing a series, actually I'm doing it right now. I've done it, I did it this weekend at a conference. Uh, I'm going to be doing two more in 2016 at churches. do this, that are 12 questions I think every teenager should be able to answer when they head off to college. And what you find is most of their parents can't answer those questions either. <laughs> I mean, they really can't answer the questions. They sort of can, but they really can't defend it very well. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know what, I'll say 50 years ago. 50 years ago, we we weren't that concerned. We really weren't. But today, it's, it's not the same culture. It's not the same world. It's not the same situation. So what Jesus is saying here to the church of Pergamum is highly relevant for us today. When it comes to the purity of what is the truth about doctrine, it matters. And I love Jim's word that we protect that because that's what Jesus, he wants it protected. And if not, he will deal with it. Which is what he says in verse 17. So he who is has here, let him hear what the Spirit says as we've gone throughout this is a third of seven this is in each one of them this is not just for pergamum this is for the churches because no it's plural churches what the spirit says to the churches this is relevant and i like this to him who overcomes remember overcomes we looked at that in first john that's the person who puts their faith in jesus who overcomes i will give him hidden manna that's the that's the word That's the word of God. It's used that way a number of times in the New Testament. And I will give him a white stone. A white stone was given to visitors when they enter a banquet in the ancient world. That's your your admissions card. So let's think about that. When he says a white stone, it's like given the permission to enter a banquet. What banquet might he be talking about here? The marriage supper of the Lamb. That great end-time banquet. Yeah, there's going to be a long table. All right. There was a little bit of preaching from my mouth the last 30 minutes, so I apologize for that. There wasn't, wasn't...
1: What church
0: do you belong to? Uh, Steadfast Bible Fellowship Church. Stead what? Steadfast Bible Fellowship. Okay. What
1: does that just
0: to well, we uh, we had our service this past Sunday. It was at the Georgetown Club, which we bought. We now own that. But um, we're until we're starting to renovate that now. But we will, uh, we won't be into that till next year. But we meet at Lewis and Clark Middle Schools where we meet. The fourth church is at Thyatira. Now, if you're on, if you're following your map, then Thyatira is just kind of southwest, strike that southeast of Pergamum. We're starting to go around the circle. This is a little more complicated. This is a church that is is intolerably tolerant. (laughs) Pardon the redundancy there. And to the angel of the church at Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. Now, there's an intensity about that description. Flame of fire. Fire in the Bible, old and new, is figuratively used of evaluation and of judgment. And like burnished bronze, that too is the image of strength and purity. You know what burnished is? You know what what that means? Burnished bronze? Polished. And and it's, it's really been through a lot. Strong. Pure. All the junk has been removed from it. So here is the pure, unadulterated, (laughs) holy Lord of the church with eyes piercing, ready to evaluate the church at Thyatira. Verse 19, as we see in all of them, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance. Five traits of the church at Thyatira. I mean, look at these deeds. This is a busy church. Your love, what God wants to see in his church, your faith, your service, your perseverance. I want to pastor this church. When they have a vacancy, I want to sign up. I want to be on staff. I'd even be willing to be the... the, the the chief pastor, the lead pastor of this church, until I read verse twenty, now I don't want anything to do
1: with it.
0: But there are good things emanating from this church. Man, busyness and activity does not equate with doctrinal purity it doesn't mean it isn't there but just because you have a busy church with lots of people doesn't necessarily mean it's a doctrinally pure church this is why he this is what he's concerned about but i verse 20 now but this i have against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel now that could actually be her real name or jesus is giving her that name because she resembles the jezebel in the old testament what was the jezebel of the old testament like what do you know about her
1: wasn't she a wicked queen
0: she was a wicked queen that's putting it mildly but she was a wicked queen who was her husband do, do, I mean, I'm, this is detail. You may or not remember all of this. Is she the one
1: that came
0: on to David? No, no, no. This is later.
1: Ahab was? It? Ahab. Her Ahab husband is up.
0: Ahab. Ahab's father was Omri, and Omri. This is the Northern Kingdom. This is Samaria. He had taken his son. It was a political marriage. I want to get the Phoenicians up to the north. I want to get them tied to the Northern Kingdom. And in the ancient world, the best way to do that is you have your son marry the daughter of the king. So now you have a great political alliance. But when Ahab, uh, when Amri had Ahab marry Jezebel, was Jezebel a believer and worshiper of the one true God, Yahweh Elohim, the God of, of the Jews? Whom did she worship? Baal? I heard somebody say it. Baal. Baal. She worshipped Baal. Now, Baal was the fertility goddess, a god, excuse me, of the Phoenicians. And one of the things associated with worship of Baal was gross immorality. And so she marries Ahab and brings Baalism into the northern kingdom. And what she does, very shrewd, her ultimate goal is to get rid of the worship of Yahweh and replace it with the worship of Baal. But she's going to do that in steps. So step one is bring Baal in, set up some idols of him around the kingdom, and say, now look, I totally agree with your worship of Yahweh. It's okay. I'm the queen. But I want to introduce you to this other god who's a fertility god. You're interested in good crops, aren't you? You You want to have an abundant harvest next fall, don't you? This is what you do. There are a series of things you need to do for Baal. Oh, and by the way, right next to the statues of Baal, we're going to erect some Asherah poles. They're wooden poles. The Asherah, Asherah is his wife. And you see what, what, what Baal does is Baal, Baal and the Asherah, they copulate and they, they produce children and they just fertilize the ground. So what you do is you go and you reenact that fertilization. That's all you have to do. You still worship Yahweh. But this wonder, and you're going to see incredible crops next year. And you know what happened? People said, Yeah, you know I can still worship Yahweh down in Samaria and Bethel and up at Dan, the major worship centers in the Northern Kingdom. But I'm going to try out this Baal stuff. And what happens? It starts to get deeply ingrained into the kingdom. And all of a sudden, instead of worshiping Yahweh, they're worshiping Baal. So whatever Jesus means, whatever Jesus means here, whether this really was a woman named Jezebel or this is a woman in the city of Thyatira that is like Jezebel, the threat is, this is a great word. This is a word you should know. The threat is syncretism. Isn't that a great word? Syncretism. Mixing belief systems. Let's worship Yahweh and let's worship Baal. We can do it together. Just like somebody saying well, you can worship Jesus in some of these new age cultic practices let's bring them into the church can we have a séance in in the basement next week just want to try this out i've heard some and i'm not talking about calling up demons i'm just talking about a group of people getting around a table holding hands and meditating and having candles and what we're going to do is we're just we're just going to see if if the spiritual world can be in touch and tune with us that night. Yeah. yeah. If anybody ever asks you to do that in your church, would you please tell your pastor yes. and tell your pastor that this is not something we are supposed to... No, I don't know what you want oh. to do. But there's that kind of mixing. And so she's very subtle. And so what is going on at Thyatira is someone who is keeping the worship of Jesus but mixing it with some other things. This is what we think is going on. And I wrote this in your notes. Thyatira was a working man's town. It wasn't an aristocratic city. It was a working man man's town. Do you know what a guild is? Do you ever hear the word guild? It's not exactly, it's a little bit like a union, but it was it was organized around, you know, there were the... It was the group of, of individuals who, who made uh, and tanned the cloth, and a group of individuals who, who made the, um, the, the cane baskets that in which you put the cloth, and another group that had a big kiln, and they made the bricks that we used. Each one had their own guild, and each one had their own god. This was very common in the ancient world. So what we think was going on is that this woman is saying, let's let each one of these guilds have their own worship. There's nothing wrong with that. And she's in the church. And so Jesus puts it this way. The woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and each thing sacrificed to idols. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I'll cast her in a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest, who in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not kept the deep things of, saying, of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Jesus is saying the harshest things we've seen him say up to this point. Why is he saying such harsh things? Say it
1: again. There's imminent danger to the purity of the
0: church. It's imminent danger in the purity of the church. Explain that. You're absolutely right. Well, the
1: Cultic
0: worship was going to infect the Christian doctrine. Mm. People pray, which would have serious mm. Absolutely. Now, what's the first commandment? I am the one who loved my
1: worship any other.
0: Yeah, you shall have no other gods before oh, me. It's a singular, deep seated commitment to the one, true, and only God. Does that command permit the mixing of any other beliefs? Does that command permit the mixing of worship of any other gods? No. <clears throat> and the moment, listen, the moment syncretism, which that's a great word, sync, just mixing together, bring, the moment syncretism creeps in, you've lost the purity of the doctrine of your church. The first question in my list of twelve is how do you know there's only one God? And how do you know? How do you know there's only one God? And how do you know your God is the right one? All the proof. BC. Now I'm not asking you to answer that. I'm just saying <laughs> what I'm saying, anyway, you can, but what I'm saying is this is this is a really important question. Why? Because today, in, in, well, all of Western civilization, but in the United States, we live in a highly pluralistic culture. Yep. Where, I mean, for the most part, there's just, you know what a smorgasbord is? There's just a smorgasbord of choices out there. and I mean, just, there's a huge number of choices. And the, the word of the culture is, you know, it's arrogant for you to say there's only one God. In this democratic, individualistic society that has embraced personal autonomy of its highest val- as its highest value, how can you say there's only one God? And how can you say that this Jesus whom you preach and you say you worship is the only way to this God? That's arrogant. How dare you say that? Now, if you have never heard anyone say that, You've been asleep the last decade, because in one way or another, that is what is being said. And it's amazing, because 25, 30 years ago, that was not the kind of discussion. And you go back to the 1950s, 83% of Americans were going to church. There was a massive revival going on. We were battling with the atheistic regime of the Soviet Union. Eisenhower just signed a bill in which he put on all our coins in God We Trust. We added to the Pledge of Allegiance in God We Trust. He put out a postage stamp of the Statue of Liberty. It's called Faith and Freedom. Faith is the top. Do you think legislation like that would pass in 2015? Never. Never. Because our culture today has bought personal autonomy as its chief value and pluralism as its primary ethic. So the idea that there's anything wrong with syncretism is an American idea. We love syncretism. Let's mix it all together in a nice big soup and stir it around and you just take whatever you want, because ultimately what really matters is what works for you. It doesn't matter whether it's true. It doesn't matter whether it's right. It's just what works for you. So what is happening at Thyatira is not it, the specifics. We don't have our unions worshiping separate gods. But we have a highly pluralistic, syncretistic culture. And Jesus is saying, don't let that pluralism and syncretism creep into my church. Correct. That's what he's saying. And
1: James, uh, to, I was going to say, there's people that will say, well, that's just another way, to, another road to God. I, I've heard that a
0: lot. Oh, my goodness, yes. That's right. Mm-hmm. They're all spokes, the. That's what you hear all
1: the time.
0: yes. Yes. I mean, now I'm trying to, I I am, I'm doing more preaching this morning than I usually do. and I I apologize for that. No, I want to teach. I don't want to just preach. But I'm trying, I guess what I'm trying to get you to think about in the application of these churches in the first two, chapter two and chapter three of Revelation, this isn't irrelevant. This isn't something obscure just from the first century. It has absolutely no application to us today. I think this is, this is remarkably relevant to us today. And so the church at Thyatira had a problem. They were tolerating syncretism and pluralism. Syncretism and pluralism was the Greco-Roman world. It was everywhere in the first century. But it's not to be in the church. Syncretism and pluralism is Everywhere in postmodern American civilization, but it's not to be in the church. So that is relevant, because, and I'm not the only one saying this. Many many are arguing the first century well, maybe this is the other, other way the 21st century is very similar to the first century. What the early church was facing in the first century is very similar to what we're facing. In the 21st century i mean it it really is and i i found that helpful especially as i study the new testament i think you know there's paul paul or john or whoever the book is in terms of its author that's something that really is applicable to us today yeah that's what they were challenged with in the first century and what jesus is saying to the church at Thyatira, if you get the words Jezebel out and just substitute something else, you think, man, this is not irrelevant. Okay? Any questions or further comments? John?
1: I'm looking at syncretism and pluralism. Uh, how do you separate them? I mean, what's what's the difference? Uh, pluralism is just tolerance of all sorts of
0: beliefs? Well, pluralism, uh, they're, they're separate ideas. Pluralism is just... Well, I used the metaphor of a smorgasbord. It's like a buffet of all kinds of choices, all kinds of religious worldview choices. They're just, I mean, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of really bizarre things from Baha'i to the major things like Islam, Christianity, etc. And even within Christianity, you have different divisions. You have the theologically liberal Christian, you have the evangelical Christian, or whatever. Syncretism, John, is then where you. You kind of pick and choose and you put things together. You bring various things together. And the danger, if we apply it to the church, the danger is you say, well, I can worship Jesus plus someone or something else. Right. Yeah. And that's what was going on in the church at Thyatira. It was a pluralistic culture. And they were trying to, uh, what would be the right way to say that, adapt, within the <coughs> church, adapt to that pluralism by syncretizing, by putting things together. You can't do that. That worked for you. Put yeah, I mean, school. that's it. Whatever works for you, whatever you do, that's fine. You're welcome in our church.
1: Isn't that kind of like, sometimes, I know, in the Catholic religion, they, said that they need to start changing with the times. That'd be something similar to that. Instead of being true to what the church
0: is. And, and especially in terms of what the church believes. The, Jude talks about the faith once delivered, uh, the Christian faith, the, the doctrinal beliefs of the church. Those things are uncompromising. You cannot compromise on them. But you know, changing with the times, we're adapting to. I mean, you know, we always have the debate about music and worship and how we do that. There's flexibility there, but what is taught and what is believed, there's no flexibility there.
1: It's the Reformation
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: As far as the practice and believing
0: that you can buy your way in that. Oh, yes, yes. Challenge a lot of that and get away with a lot of that. Daryl? the church, at the time
1: of practice same-sex marriage?
0: Well, there's a non-controversial issue. <laughs> no, I don't I don't know. I don't know. It, it, you know I, it, it doesn't explain to us that that was an issue, but the acts of immorality and so on, that was not a major issue in the Greco Roman world. It doesn't mean that there wasn't gay and lesbian practices that was very pervasive. But the, the formal marriage was not something that was in the Greco Roman world. But you know, if you if you fast forward the Thyatira uh, be the right way to say it, the spirit of Thyatira tolerance would probably say, Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Who is that? Yeah, Mark. Is, is
1: it that similar to the, you know, interfaith dialogue, faith initiative, the Lord would worship the same God and the common word thing that's going on with church donations and stuff like that? And my question is, how did they stop that from happening in the first century Christianity and what we can learn from that to apply nowadays?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, there are about five questions there, Mark, <laughs> if, if I heard all that you were saying. Uh, I, I probably right now I'll stay away from this tri-faith thing in our community because of it's complex. But uh, the idea that uh, if you take that Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are just variations of the same theme, I do not think biblically you can say that. I really don't. I do not believe that Allah is the God of the Bible. I really don't, and I, I think we can show that. But your other really major question, which is the key operative question, the the early church was very um, determined and very disciplined in maintaining its purity when it came to doctrine. It was incredibly there was incredible variation. In the early church, I mean, the first century was incredible variation in how they did things, how they worshiped. We we have a book that in the first century called the Didache. It's actually early second century, early one hundred But the Didache is teaching of the twelve. It's like a handbook for how you do the church, and it's, there's so much variety on how they when they met on a Sunday, how they they met for. Sometimes they met all day. I mean, but what is uncompromising. Is a commitment to the purity of sound doctrine. And Mark, they would, they would, the word we would use is excommunicate. They would excommunicate people from the fellowship if they would try to do what there's what the Jezebel of Thyatira was doing. Excommunicate, they just ask them to leave the church. They would disassociate with them because the purity of the church. And they would use 1 Corinthians 5 as just the key. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul's quoting a proverb there. You know what leaven is? If you don't deal with it, it corrupts everything.
1: So we don't have people to do that. This is why I'm left by myself to fight the tri-faith and interfaith movement, you know, because church leaders are not willing to stand up and, and do things, you know, and approach the issues. Like you said, Allah is not the God of the Bible. I'm mean, just making a comment.
0: Yeah, no. so I'm not trying to produce militant warriors in this class. That's not what I think, what I am trying to get you to think about is it is important to our Savior. And that's what we've seen in Pergamum and we've seen in Thyatira. It is important to our Savior what we believe. It's important to him. And I love how Jim put it, it is important to him that we protect that. Christianity, genuine biblical Christianity, is not just believing whatever you want to believe. That's not what it is. If that's what you want, don't go to a Christian church. Go somewhere else. Christianity is about distinct, clear, doctrinal truth. And the Savior and Lord of the church is interested in protecting that. And that means we should be interested in protecting. I can't believe it. so it's almost 10 of it. Uh, so I honestly, I am not interested in producing warriors. I'm interested in individuals who are growing in our faith and who are interested in the things our Savior's interested in. Okay? Uh, next week, uh, well, we've got to finish Thyatira, and we'll finally be getting into chapter 3 with Sardis. This is a dead church. If you have time to read it, it's only six verses. Why is it a dead church? So we'll, we'll finish Thyatira next week and get into the dead church. Lord, um, we've had a good discussion this morning. Um, I hope the takeaway from this morning is that, that you, the Savior and Lord of the church, is interested in protecting the purity of and distinctiveness of what the church believes it isn't just believe whatever you want and just come in that is not the church and so lord how we protect that is so important it is important that the same thing that you value is what we value so that does mean for each one of us personally that we want to study your word we want to understand your word we want to um, believe what the word teaches and respond to it in faith and trust. And it's important that we're interested in the purity of sound doctrine. And uh, those things that are important to you must be important to us. So I pray for these men at that, uh, in that level. Help us to be men who uh, begin to see and understand the things the way you see and understand them, that what is important to you is important to us. And as you, Jesus, wanted to protect the purity of what your church believes, that is something we should be interested in, protecting the purity of what the church believes. And that means we have to know what it believes, and we have to know what the Word of God teaches. And so, Lord, we just commit that to you. I thank you for these men because they must be interested in that or they wouldn't come week after week to this class give them strength, give them enablement, and Lord, in all they do and all they say, even the rest of this day, might they represent you well. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.